My guest today is Dr. Carl Fry. Dr. Carl Fry is the co-director of Program on Technology and Employment at the Oxford Martin School at Oxford University. His research focuses on how advances in digital technology are reshaping the nature of work and jobs and what that might mean for the future. Dr. Carl Fry is author of a recent very thorough book, The Technology Trap, Capital, Labor and Power in the Age of Automation. From the Industrial Revolution to the Age of Artificial Intelligence, this book presents a comprehensive overview of technological progress and how it fundamentally shifted distribution of economic and political power in the society. Dr. Carl Fry is with me on the phone. Uh, Carl, thank you very much for taking my call and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. It's a pleasure to be with you. Carl, uh, before we discuss your book, The Technology Trap, uh, please tell us about yourself. Uh, tell us about your, your education, your career uh, and your research. Sure. So I'm an economist and economic historian by background, and I got interested in technology from uh, quite an early age, uh, actually before I started properly studying economics. And uh, much of this sort of goes back to to my school years and my father uh, coming home from a business trip with two books that he gave me. One was Joe McCurse, uh, The Lever of Riches, um, and the other was, was Clayton Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma. And uh, what these books told me at the time is that technology has been the key driver of economic growth and prosperity more broadly uh, over the past two centuries at the very least, uh, uh, and uh, most certainly longer. Um, and But it also shows that technological change is not the smooth, linear, and tidy process. Um, and there's certainly been losers along the way. Um, and at times, those losers have even resisted technological change. The focus of your book is the future of work. Let us first look at the history of work and how the nature of work evolved through various ages. Uh, you say in your book that for most of the human history, uh, there was no wealth uh, and no inequality. The age of inequality began with the Neolithic Revolution. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think that's right. So hunter and gatherers essentially had no technology uh, for storing food. Um, and as a result of that, instant consumption uh, was the only available option. Uh, with the rise of agriculture, uh, technology, or it was became possible to store uh, food in animals, in uh, domesticated animals and, and granaries. And for the first time, a system uh, emerged that uh, was designed to protect people's uh, property rights. And, and because some of these uh, farming societies started to accumulate a surplus um, of significance um, as a result of this and had property rights to protect their uh, wealth and, and income, 
um, inequality grew um, as um, a response. And this was very much sort of the world that, uh, in a way, Jane Austen still describes in her novels, and it's around 1800. Uh, although, you know, there have been a lot of technological uh, progress uh, up until then, and clearly new occupations had emerged, and industry was just about to start uh, taking off. Um, but wealth was, and income was still uh, mainly derived from the land, and and there was significant uh, wealth and income inequality. And uh, uh, you say that post-Neolithic uh, rise of inequality uh, was accompanied by a fall in average standard of uh, living? Yeah, so most evidence actually suggests that people were worse off uh, during the early sort of shift to, from hunter-gatherer and to um, agriculture uh, societies. Um, and this is showed by skeletons, which suggest that people had, for example, worse teeth, and it's suggested by uh, heights, which suggest that people had a worse food intake, a worse diet, um, as a consequence of the shift towards agriculture. Uh, and one reason might simply be that, you know, we moved to a higher level, higher plateau of technology, but that because growth was still quite slow or technology adoption was still um, quite slow, um, higher incomes only translated into larger uh, populations, um, which offset any effects or income effects in per capita terms. Uh, in your book, uh, The Technology Trap, uh, you discuss the progress of technological development from 16th century to the present time. And, and then you uh, discuss future. Uh, in your view, as you discuss in the book, how, when and where did the first industrial revolution happen? So most economic historians date the industrial revolution uh, around 1760 or 1770, so sort of the 1760s, uh, roughly, which is when Arkwright took out his first patent and when James Watt patented the, uh, his separate condenser uh, for the steam uh, engine. Um, and the Industrial Revolution was, at his heart, the rise of the factory system and the replacement of the domestic systems in the artisan shop uh, with the mechanized uh, factory. Um, and it's largely uh, uh, um, goes uh, hand in hand with the adoption um, of machinery. So in the artisan shop, the artisan craftsman did essentially every stage, stage in production himself. He tended to work from his home surrounded by his family. Um, and the mechanized factory was very different with its extreme division of labor, uh, which allowed people to specialize in one uh, particular task. It also allowed us for the first time to apply machinery on board the scale in those particular tasks. And the first uh, industry 
supply machinery was actually silk, but it was a very small industry and had no significant impact on aggregate growth whatsoever. So the first industry to actually transform the economy more broadly uh, was the cotton industry, uh, where the first spinning machines uh, were adapted on mass scale. So what's, what's important in this period of time and what I discuss in the book is that uh, if you plot GDP per capita growth over time, it looks sort of almost like a hockey stick. So economic growth is stagnant uh, for millennia. Up until around 1800, we see sort of this takeoff in the per capita growth. And the reason for that, you will be told if you take an introductory course in economic history, is the arrival of the mechanized factories, as I mentioned earlier, with its extreme divisions of labor and the application of machinery, which allowed us to produce more with fewer workers. And if we take the long run story since the Industrial Revolution, that we roughly 40 times richer today than at the onset of it, uh, adjusted for uh, inflation. Um, and that, if anything, understates the transformation that has taken place since, because the consumer basket that you can buy today is very, very different from the one you can buy in the uh, 70s, right? Uh, things like automobiles, telephones, washing machines, computers, and not to mention minor inventions like antibiotics, weren't even available uh, back then. And people at the time could essentially just look at the life of uh, the wealthy um, in envy who had servants to do the most tedious things for them. Um, and today, everybody in, in the industrial West essentially has access to the electric servant in terms of you know, vacuum cleaners, washing machines, dishwashers, that relieve us of a lot um, of uh, hard and uh, tedious work. So the long-run story has really been one of uh, tremendous uh, uh, prosperity, uh, especially for those at the lower end of the uh, income, lower and middle end of the income distribution. Uh, but the short-run effects of the Industrial Revolution were uh, very different. So during this period of time, as the uh, mechanized factory replaced the artisan shop, middle-income jobs Middle uh, or the middle income jobs of artists and craftsmen disappeared. Uh, so we're seeing hollowing out of the middle, uh, very similar to the hollowing out of middle income jobs that we've seen um, in recent years. We saw that wages were stagnant even as the British economy took off. And, and then we're probably even falling at the lower end of the income distribution uh, because the cohorts born in 1750 were actually taller than the cohorts born in 1850. And part of that has to do with unhealthy environments, factory cities produced, but part is also because people's nutrition um, actually became poorer as their incomes vanished uh, due to mechanization during this period of time. Um, and factory owners actually often employed children in the factories to sap resistance because a puzzle to economists and economic historians has long been if industrialization actually reduced people's utility, why would they have voluntarily participated in the industrialization process? And, and the simple answer to that is that they didn't. They petitioned to parliament to block the introduction 
um, of machinery. They frequently rioted against the mechanist factory and smashed machinery. And, and while much popular commentaries focused on the Luddite riots, uh, they were only part of a wave of uh, machinery rights that swept across uh, continental Europe, Britain, um, and even um, China. And, and I think it's important to remember that the British government at times responded with brutal force. Uh, the army that was sent out against the Luddites was actually larger than the army that uh, Wellington took to the Peninsular War against Napoleon in 1808. So effectively, industrialization was enforced upon the working uh, population. Um, and the Luddites were right, because they were not the ones who stood to benefit from mechanization. Uh, so their opposition made perfect sense. Uh, but for later generations, I think we can be happy that they were unsuccessful in blocking uh, uh, or bringing progress to halt. And, and I think that the tremendous disruption uh, and transitional pains that the Industrial Revolution caused uh, are important to remember. And they were well captured in Friedrich Engels' Conditions of the Working Classes, which heavily draw upon earlier work from Peter Gaskell, who wasn't a, a revolutionary or a Marxist or, uh, by any means. Uh, but the industrialization process clearly uh, sort of laid uh, uh, the foundations for the Communist Manifesto, and a lot of revolutionary technology spread a lot of political revolutionaries along the way. A number of uh, these uh, rebels uh, against uh, technological development and uh, mechanization of work uh, were arrested. Uh, some of these rebels were sent to foreign lands uh, and some were uh, even hanged. Now, this was mainly a British story during the first industrial revolution. But when the second industrial revolution happens in the United States, do we see similarities? Do we see similar activities happening during the second industrial revolution? So the second industrial revolution was uh, quite different and um, the second uh, uh, industrial revolution I should say was primarily powered by electricity not steam power is the first one um, and the internal combustion engine and that gave rise to the tractor and the automobile uh, and uh, uh, private trans uh, transportation uh, more uh, broadly. Um, and the reason that the uh, second industrial revolution uh, was different is that it was built on a host of new technologies that created significant new operations and in industry. So it was rested on a, a host of enabling technologies that created new jobs and tasks for labor rather than replacing them in existing jobs and tasks. Um, and you can see that, and that's particularly evident if you look at the spread of the tractor, which was a replacing technology. But what this shows is that um, the 
the um, adverse impacts of replacing technologies was more than offset by uh, the uh, the job creating impacts of enabling technologies. So what you see with the adoption of the tractor is that it took a long time to diffuse because one reason was that uh, um, that tractor operators uh, were in high demand, but there were very few of them. And the New York Times noted in 1918 that a tractor is too good of a machine to be put in the hands of the poor operator. Uh, and as a result of that, colleges were set up to spur um, the education of tractor um, operators. Uh, but more importantly, tractors were only adopted on mass scale when sheep labor began to disappear from the countryside and labor shortages emerged. And the reason for that was that new technologies and new industries created significant new employment opportunities in factory cities where people had much higher wages. So rather than being pushed out of middle-income jobs, as was the case during the first Industrial Revolution, a lot of people were drawn into new type of middle-income jobs and in the manufacturing industry and the mechanization of agriculture uh, followed. And, and it's certainly true that there were other replacing technologies uh, uh, during this period. So you can think about the jobs of lamp lighters, for example. We no longer have lamp lighters to ignite uh, gas lamps in our street. We have electric lightning. Um, and those jobs certainly disappeared as a result of this. Uh, later on, we saw the disappearance of elevator operators with automatic um, elevators, for example. Uh, but uh, the, the outside options that those people had were much better because of the expansion of manufacturing industry that simply created a lot of new well-paying jobs. And this is not to downplay you know, the role of uh, labor unions and you know, other factors that, that you know, improved to a large extent uh, working conditions. Uh, wages began to rise long before uh, labor unions um, became politically uh, powerful. Uh, but they certainly did have an impact uh, on the trajectories of wages as well. Uh, do you think that uh, when compared on the same scale, the inequality in the second industrial revolution decreased and was less than the inequality that emerged in the first industrial revolution? Yeah, so there are uh, a number of studies to suggest that inequality uh, declined during the early stages um, or the sort of first, first couple of decades. Uh, or the, I should say the first half of the 20th century. And obviously that was related to numerous factors. Uh, wealth and equality uh, certainly declined as a result of the uh, depression and wars, as highlighted by Thomas Piketty. Uh, as I mentioned, labor unions had an impact. Uh, but it's also crystal clear that you know depressions and wars can't really... Um, 
account for the wage comp compression that we see at lower ranks of the income distribution or the middle rank and most people's incomes are derived from the wages uh, not from capital um, and it's also clear that education played a, a very important role uh, because many uh, farm families realized that their children would uh, need to have an, an education to prosper in the age of the second industrial revolution um, and this was sort of uh, one of the um, uh, what, what, what led to the high school movement in the United States. Um, so the demand uh, to the supply of skills also uh, kept pace with the demand for skills um, that emerged during this uh, um, uh, second industrial revolution. Uh, before we start uh, discussing the future, uh, the future of uh, work and jobs, uh, let us look at the major milestones that occurred uh, from the time of Second Industrial Revolution to the present day, uh, mainly in terms of uh, technological developments that had direct impact on the nature of work and uh, jobs. So um, the next break we see from the early 1980s um, onwards and, uh, and up until now, and this has been the period that uh, very much resembles the early uh, stages of industrialization in Britain uh, that I uh, uh, described um, earlier. So what we've seen during this period has been the hollowing out again of middle-income jobs, it's been uh, stagnant wage growth and even falling wages for men with no more uh, than a high school degree. And actually not just a, a, a question of growing inequality, but some groups in the labor market have actually been left worse off um, in economic terms um, as technology has progressed. And this again has to do with uh, technology becoming increasingly replacing rather than enabling. So you can think of robots being adapted in manufacturing industry, which has led to deindustrialization. Manufacturing employment in the United States peaked in um, 1979, um, and millions of manufacturing jobs have been shredded since. Uh, part of the story um, has to do with globalization and jobs leaving to countries like China. But as the manufacturing employment share has declined, the manufacturing and output share is actually not. So uh, there's still a lot of manufactured goods being produced in the United States, but with a lot fewer people. Um, and if you look to the developing world, we see that even there, uh, manufacturing employment uh, is not what it used to be. So uh, manufacturing employment peaked well above 30% in countries like Germany, the United Kingdom, and the United States. It has already peaked below 20% uh, in countries like um, India, China, and um, Brazil. Uh, so manufacturing industry, even in those countries, is not yielding uh, as a significant share um, of employment. And uh, part of the reason is uh, the rise um, of uh, the robots. 
Um, now, we all know that we are living in a time of economic polarization. And as I mentioned earlier, we've seen this holding out of, um, of, of uh, middle-income jobs. But um, what has happened um, uh, in tandem with that is that uh, we also see increasing political polarization. Um, and uh, what the first Industrial Revolution shows us is that times of rapid technological change can also be times of very rapid social and political um, change. Um, and this is uh, another such time. Uh, so shall I elaborate a bit on that? Uh, yes, uh, please uh, continue. Uh, you have already started uh, addressing my next question about the rise of uh, politics of polarization. So please continue. Yes. So, so what used to be the case sort of in the 50s and 60s is that you saw uh, through post-election service that uh, high-income voters tend to be more associated with the political right, which is still the case today, and low education, low income voters tend to be more associated with the political left. What has changed is that from the 70s and 80s onwards, you see that high education voters are more associated with the political left. Um, and the old working class, if you like, has essentially become more politically uh, disenfranchised and no longer represented to the same extent by the main parties in uh, countries like France, Germany, United Kingdom, um, United States and Sweden and so on. Um, and this is also the group that has been the hardest hit by deindustrialization and have faced uh, diminishing uh, uh, incomes uh, as a result of globalization and, and automation. Um, and what the populists have done very effectively is to tap um, into their um, anger. Um, and our research with colleagues at Tor Berger and Xin Shishen um, sh clearly shows that there is a link between where the robots are and uh, how people voted in the 2016 election. So if you want to explain, for example, why three key uh, swing states like Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, which have been won by the Democratic presidential candidate every election since 1992, all of the sudden opted for the Democratic, um, uh, sorry, for the Republican candidate in President Trump, uh, robots is certainly one of the uh, reasons. And there are more robots in Michigan alone uh, than in the entire uh, uh, American West. So uh, uh, the impacts of these technologies have clearly been felt very unevenly. Um, and what we see is that when new tech clusters have emerged, right, um, a host of new in-person service occupations are also being created because when you create uh, one new tech job in a city like San Francisco, that person goes out and spends his or her money on local um, services, goes to the hairdresser, takes a taxi, goes grocery shopping, and so on. Um, and uh, in places like Detroit, to take a caricature, 
Um, every lost manufacturing job has also been uh, meant the loss of other uh, jobs in the local service sector in the economy. So you've had this great divergence between places uh, in large part due to technological change and, and you're seeing very different political preferences as a result of that because people are essentially living in uh, completely different realities. I mean, some of the communities that you have in the Bay Area uh, have very little in common with the communities that have deindustrialized. Um, and because people uh, rarely engage across communities in the same way, they also have a poor understanding of the situation uh, in, in, in some other communities. And I think this is what's really driving uh, much of the political polarization we're seeing now. Uh, let us now uh, discuss uh, the future of uh, work and uh, jobs. You published a study in 2013 that concluded that about 47% of US employment is at risk due to the emergence of artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, and uh, related automation technologies. Uh, talk to us about this study and these uh, findings. Right. So what we did back in 2013, and by me, we, I mean, uh, my friend and colleague Michael Osborne, who's a professor in machine learning, and I, uh, we set out to estimate how exposed jobs are to automation because we found that uh, most economic theory suggests that computers have a comparative advantage in routine rule-based activities that can easily be specified in computer code and therefore readily automated. Um, and that has certainly um, been the case, and those studies have also uh, confirmed that intuition in that we've seen a decline in occupations that were very routine-intensive. But at the same time, we see uh, a new generation of technologies powered by uh, artificial intelligence and big data that uh, can do also things that are non-routine uh, or that scholars used to deem non-routine, like driving a car, like writing a short news story, uh, like diagnosing disease, uh, like documenting a review, and so on. And, and what we try to do is to get a feeling for what that might mean for current jobs. So uh, to, to say something meaningful about that, we actually started by sort of phrasing the question somewhat differently and saying that, and asking the question that uh, despite all of these advances in technology, which domains will humans still hold the comparative advantage? Um, and we find that there are three key bottlenecks that persist. So one relates to complex social interactions, uh, which I think is best described by the Turing test where chatbots or Turing test competitions where chatbots try to convince human judges of them being a person. And some people argue that there was a breakthrough 
couple of years ago when Rod Schatzbotter actually managed to convince 30% of human judges of it being a person. Uh, but it did so by pretending to be a 13-year-old boy speaking English as his second language uh, with no understanding of English culture. And, and if you think about a variety of much more complex social interactions you do in your job, for example, um, this, and this is, I mean, basic text communication, uh, it's almost inconceivable uh, that we will be replaced in, you know, tasks like negotiating and motivating colleagues and, uh, you know, persuading people uh, that we write and things like that. Um, so, so, so jobs that involve or center on complex social interactions um, are still uh, safe from automation. And the same is true for jobs that are um, uh, intensive in creative tasks and uh, tasks that uh, require uh, uh, perception and manipulation uh, skills. Um, and so uh, what we find is that, well, there's actually quite a significant uh, fraction of employment that is not highly exposed, uh, or uh, sorry, that is not highly intensive in such tasks, and roughly 47%, as you mentioned, of jobs are exposed to automation um, as a consequence um, of that. Now, that doesn't mean that all of those jobs will be automated away anytime soon because a lot of factors drive decisions to automate beyond technological, technical capabilities. Um, and one, which I think you wanted to get into later on maybe, um, has to do with adverse public opinion and utterance resistance to technology. Others have to do with the relative cost between capital and labor. So when Nissan produces uh, cars in, in, uh, in, in Japan, for example, it relies heavily on robots. When it does the same thing in India, it relies heavily um, on cheap labor. Um, unless you give Google Translate a certification, it's not going to replace uh, translators in certain domains because still today you need uh, certain documents to be certified by human translators. Legislation will also play a role in this and so on. I think it is uh, very important uh, to highlight uh, that the choices uh, we make now uh, will shape the future of work, jobs uh, and employment. Uh, how can we effectively use the lessons learned from previous industrial revolutions to plan for a better future of work and employment? Sure. So one thing that we can clearly learn is that when technology has been of the labor-replacing sort, resistance have often followed. And, and we've already seen a backlash against globalization. And, and I think most economists agree that uh, over the past 10 years, automation and globalization have had similar effects on jobs and, and uh, communities. Um, and we've already seen this backlash against globalization, but we haven't seen it yet against automation. Um, and I think that most people today already work in non-traded sectors of the economy. The rise of China has already happened and they are relatively shielded from future globalization. But they are not shielded from automation. Uh, so, for example, the job of a cashier is likely to be replaced with Amazon Go, uh, but the job of a cashier can't be sent off to China. 
And the same is true with the job of, let's say, a truck driver. And, and people are eventually going to uh, find out that hiking up tariffs is not going to bring the job back, uh, jobs back. And uh, they are going to look for different uh, uh, scapegoats. Um, and uh, if history is any guidance, uh, that is likely to be uh, technology. And indeed, we're already seeing you know, discussions of ta about taxing robots to slow down the pace of automation on both sides of the Atlantic. In the United States, Andrew Yang is now running on a sort of anti-automation campaign. Um, so this... I think is uh, something that is only going to become uh, a growing uh, issue. Uh, and uh, what we can learn in terms of handling it is that, well, uh, that, that uh, you know, we need to manage the transition. So during the British Industrial Revolution, um, the Maltusian logic still persisted among economists. So that is the belief that um, that uh, rising incomes would only translate into larger population with no uh, improvement of people's living standards in per capita terms. And this is also one of the reasons why the poor laws uh, who supported people who suffered bad luck, who lost their jobs to mechanization, were reformed and uh, basically abolished in 1834 um, because it was argued that they uh, didn't even help the poor uh, because they were only leading or any sort of income distribution would only lead to larger populations. And this time now uh, we know better. Um, and it's striking, I find, that when I go home to Sweden, uh, there are very few people that are too, very concerned about automation. Uh, and of course, if you don't risk losing your health insurance with your job, uh, there is less, at least, to be worried about. Uh, so the lesson is that we need to manage the transition. And I don't think that there is this one big solution that will solve our problems. Uh, but I think there are many things that can make a really big difference collectively um, and uh, uh, that I discuss uh, in more detail in the book. Uh, you made an important point a few moments ago that uh, people are perhaps not paying attention to these uh, changes, uh, to these uh, emerging technologies and uh, their possible impact. Do you think that we should proactively try to make sure that uh, we all understand the impact of these technological developments on jobs and employment? No, I think awareness is important, but I think, I mean, there are two sides to that. So on the one hand, you don't want to exaggerate uh, the effects because that can, you know, just exacerbate anxiety and lead to the wrong policy responses like taxing robots. Uh, but you don't want to look the other way, like we did with globalization, and saying that on, you know, on 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 average, uh, everything is good, and then you know, forget about the fact that some communities uh, have really suffered from this, uh, because reality catches up uh, sooner or later. Uh, so I think you know, informing without scaring uh, is uh, the tricky balance. 
uh, and clearly, if people have an idea of which jobs that are, you know, less likely to provide employment in the future, and uh, which are, uh, they can, you know, act on the basis of that information. I'm not saying that we have perfect inf information on that, far from it, but at least we have, you know, certain ideas um, about, uh, or a certain idea of what machines can um, and cannot do. Our universities and higher education institutions are places where learners gain and develop skills. They acquire skills for employability. Do you think that our universities and colleges should lead this conversation to inform us? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's certainly part of it. Uh, and I think, I mean, there's been a variety of studies by academics that have, you know, uh, served to foster more awareness around this. Um, but, I mean, in terms of providing skills, I think that, you know, it actually starts with early childhood uh, education, and that is arguably, arguably even more important. So education sector, uh, including schools, colleges, universities, and other relevant organizations, uh, should work together to prepare the next generation uh, so that they are uh, ready for these uh, future changes uh, in the job market? Yeah, and I think some, some, some clearly are. I mean, I mean, I think there's at least an increasing interest in the subject. Uh, let us uh, briefly discuss again uh, the emergence of uh, politics of polarization. Now, we discussed uh, earlier that uh, one important factor responsible for the emergence of uh, the politics of polarization is mass job losses. Uh, do you see this style of politics continuing as we lose more jobs to automation and artificial intelligence in near future? Right. So, first of all, I mean, there's no way of knowing, but I mean, uh, judged by what we're seeing uh, in terms of new technologies on the horizon, uh, it looks like most of them are set to replace low-skilled, low-income workers, and most new jobs that are emerging are highly skilled, like big data architects and um, Android developers and so on. Uh, so it seems that the sort of cleavages between the skilled and unskilled uh, are likely to be exacerbated, exacerbated by that. Um, and uh, it seems to me that unless uh, anything is done uh, to, to bridge that gap, uh, polarization uh, in our politics is likely to continue as well. Uh, but that is sort of on the promise of, premise of nothing being done, uh, and hopefully we will make the right decisions. Uh, so then, uh, based on what you just said, uh, we can make an observation that inequality uh, will continue increasing. So, so to go back to my original point, I mean, uh, yes, so I think it's possible that, or I think technology uh, has the potential of exacerbating current trends, but inequality also depends on the policies that are being implemented. And 
so I, I don't think we can just extrapolate from current trend. Uh, it depends on what we actually do today and tomorrow. Carl, uh, we have been discussing uh, your book, The Technology Trap, uh, Capital, Labor and Power in the Age of Automation. Uh, it is a fascinating read and uh, this is an important book. It covers uh, a lot of important points uh, about the future of work and employability that uh, we all should be paying attention to. Uh, is there anything else that uh, you think we should touch upon uh, before I close this discussion? Uh, something that uh, I might have overlooked? Well, I think it's been a wide-ranging conversation. I would, in terms of the responses, and I, I don't want to go through all of them, but let me just finish with an anecdote. So, where I grew up in southern Sweden, it's close to a city called Malmö. And Malmö was a city that specialized in building ship, ships, and that industry, um, uh, or its shipyard closed down in the early 1990s, and, and the uh, city was performing very poorly economically for a long time, and essentially up until the, the point of the construction of the Öresund Bridge between Melbourne and Copenhagen, which allowed people who lived in Melbourne to tap into uh, a prospering labor market uh, in Copenhagen. It allowed them to stay put in the communities where they lived, uh, and as a result of that, they spent most of the incomes, uh, income locally, which gave a boost to the local uh, uh, service uh, economy uh, and created this virtuous cycle and it's now uh, arguably the most uh, dynamic labor market um, in Europe. Uh, so I think that by connecting uh, declining and expanding places, a lot can actually uh, be um, achieved and looking forward and new technologies are on the horizon here as well. So there currently being a feasibility study being made of, of connecting uh, Chicago and Cleveland with the Hyperloop. So a six-hour uh, drive could potentially become, at some point in the future, a 28-minute commute to cities or two labor markets would essentially become one. And, and because much has to do with these regional uh, differences, I think a lot can actually be gained uh, by, by by looking at uh, smart infrastructure uh, investment. Uh, Dr. Carl Fry, uh, thank you very much uh, for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you very much. Thank you and uh, goodbye.